and welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Troy. And we will be talking about the 2015 American horror thriller film Green Room, which was directed by Jeremy Saulnier, I believe is how you pronounce his name, and features a punk band who have suddenly found themselves in the midst of a neo-Nazi punk den fighting for their lives and their escape. Troy was the one that actually turned me on to this movie. It was at his suggestion. And uh, I just want to know, Troy, what's your what's your background with both this film and also the punk genre, the topic of the film? So um, I've played in punk bands for many, many years. Um, and punk was kind of my, like, after, after hearing, you know, pop music on the radio and stuff, punk was what made me love music so i was into a lot of pop punk like early on and then got kind of into hardcore in like college and um which is very much the subject of this of this movie is the sort of hardcore punk subgenre i played in bands that went on tour um not quite to the extent that for instance the ain't rights in this movie do but this movie came out while i was on tour with um one of my old bands and um i remember we stayed at my parents' house uh, after a show in Bloomington and our drummer and guitarist and I watched this movie while on tour. And then on our next tour, played a venue that reminded me a little too much of the venue in this movie. Yeah, so that's a little bit of my history with this. Uh, I I mean, I love this movie. <laughs> Yeah, so one of the one of the forefronts of this movie, or really the the main plotline of this movie, is that this DC punk band, The Ain't Rights, which features Pat, Sam, Reese, and Tiger, uh, are looking for gigs around the Pacific Northwest. They're low on funds, and they get this gig that uh, takes them to this kind of neo-Nazi skinhead bar. And of course, at first, they're just like, "Yeah, it's a gig." These kinds of people show up at our events anyway. We're just going to do the gig so that we can get paid. They got paid $350. And uh, when going to retrieve a charger from the green room, which is where this film takes its name, uh, one of the characters, Pat, walks in to see a murder that had just recently happened from the house band Cowcatcher. Uh, which leads to a whole solution where they find that they're on top of this underground neo-Nazi heroin den. And the main neo-Nazi, who is so meticulous in his disposal of uh, potentially uninvited trespassers, uh, is played by Patrick Stewart. And I think that that, for me, was the most shocking part of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> He is. He's so good in this. I don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever seen him be like the villain in anything else, but he is so scary. Yeah. 
and like he just the way that he like mumbles but is yeah but like you said he's so meticulous and so like uncompromising in his both his morals as you know horrible as they are and also his like you know desire to it's a sort of you know obviously keep his his heroin business running but also his like keep his gang tight or whatever like he's i don't know he's he's a terrifying villain yes for sure i think one of the moments that really sell him as this maniacal force to deal with is the moment where they uh, are taking negotiations so at some point, uh, the band, while in the green room, is able to overpower one of the bouncers. They have a hold of a gun, and they are offering to trade the gun uh, to Darcy, who's played by Patrick Stewart, uh, for their own freedom. Darcy coming in and saying, there's an unregistered gun. I just want this to be solved, which is, of course, a lie. But for me, the moment that kind of clicked in my head how obscenely horrifying he is as a character is just when he says, my voice is getting hoarse, can I talk to you at this volume? And there's something so calm and measured about him as a villain. There's no bombast. There's no eccentricity. It is just cool and calculated. Almost in the same way that um, I think Gus Frink is in Breaking Bad. Oh, that's a great comparison. There is a demeanor that is just so striking, especially in comparison to Yelkin, who who plays our lead Pat and his bandmates, who are all much more high energy and experiencing all of this with, you know, a lot more adrenaline naturally. I love the comparison to Gus Fring because, like you said, they're both um, very kind of cool, collected, under pressure, like sort of forces of pure evil. But with Gus Fring, you get to see a lot of his daily life, his, you know, what he's like, you know, outside of the, the drug trade. And with Darcy, you don't get to see that at all, which I kind of, I wondered if that might be kind of an issue with this movie. But I, I don't know. Patrick Stewart is just so good and so, so vicious in this that I, uh, it kind of doesn't matter. He's, he's so good. I, I actually don't think that it is so necessary for us to see Darcy's backstory uh, and to see him outside. Like, with, with, with Spring, there comes the baggage of this being a long-running TV series where they have to create this persona that can stand the test of several episodes. And in this case, we are having an isolated incident. And to complement him, they have the character of Gabe, who is kind of the house manager, door manager for the venue, who is also in the movie at the beginning trying to make it into the Red Laces, which is the neo-nazi skinhead group and ultimately uh halfway through does but at the end is held at gunpoint and kind of goes turncoat we get to see a more recognizable pathos with that character so that when we have the juxtaposition of darcy and gabe we can kind of settle on Gabe as the as the middle ground. Yeah, and and the thing that struck me about watching Gabe's story this time is that he's kind of like a parallel. His arc is kind of parallel to the band, in that he he starts off as kind of a true believer in in his cause, just like the band starts off as this very like you know they're they're the punkest of the punk. They don't have the internet presence. They're just sharing their getting getting their music out there in the world. And I think once everything goes to hell and the the end of the movie, Gabe kind of realizes that he's in over his head and that it's it's not like really worth it for him to to have you know have red laces or whatever just as i think the band kind of they realize very quickly that they're way in over their heads and they're not as like hard and tough as they as they kind of thought they were right yeah and and with gabe it's one of those things where we see his initiation happen on screen 
And Gabe, to me, sort of has that same kind of quality that we get in American History X, where we see the, like, oh, this was a bad decision, and this will ruin my life. Where in that movie, obviously, we have both sides of that story, the pre-initiation, the post-initiation, and all of the, the minutiae in between. We kind of see that play out in Gabe in this movie, going from he hasn't done any of those things, the death happens, Emily's death, and then all of a sudden all of the gears start turning to, uh-oh, this is this is bad, this is not something that I want to be a part of, and he takes on, from the beginning, this super, super passive role. And even when he's being given the red laces, there's a certain hesitancy to his character that I think makes him more relatable as a character. Yeah, I I found myself like surprising, feeling like surprisingly sympathetic to him this time watching it even though he's does some pretty horrible stuff obviously yeah and he's gonna he's gonna clean up the bar like obviously he's he's in the aftermath phase right it the the path has gone on too long i I also think there is a there's a certain inexplicable irony to gabe at the end walking up to the nearby farm which doesn't look like it's being operated by white people and is gonna have them call the authorities especially given the history of neo-nazis in america oh yeah i mean that's uh, that's kind of the the final joke of the movie is that is that he ends up having to ask you know to someone who's not white for help yeah exactly and i was really shocked that one going into this watching it for the first time he lived and two how many of the band members died I, i mean it's it's all all of them except for pat right All of them except for Pat, which there is, I think, a certain joke that is also being played out throughout the course of the movie, which is the Desert Island Band thing, with Pat being the only one that doesn't say his Desert Island Band, so we never have the conclusion to his character, versus Sam, for one, or or Reese or Tiger, and it's almost like the act of saying their Desert Island Band out loud was... To the audience, the thing that got them killed, their character arc has ended because they have, they have come fully across from hardcore punk, only like punk, mainstream is garbage, to actually, I really like this mainstream thing. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's, uh, this, that was what made me love this movie the first, the first time I, well, I mean, I love like I said, I love so many things about this movie, but the scene when they when they are in about to like go out and fight, basically, and and Sam says, you know, fuck it, Simon and Garfunkel, and they all, well, she, you know, she does Simon and Garfunkel, and um, Prince Tiger says Prince, <laughs> and then Reese is like, nope, still Misfits is so it, it's such a great punk joke because like the Misfits are like the corniest punk band, and any punk that says their favorite band is the Misfits is totally like a you know quote-unquote poser punk or whatever and like he just he doesn't care he just you know that's misfits are punk to him and he he's he doesn't like you know that's just purely what he loves and i that's one of like it's such a great character moment for him i i love that part um but i was gonna what i was gonna say is i i think the movie does like telegraph what pat's desert island band is because when the movie ends a credence clearwater song plays over the credits and uh, to me that's saying credence is his band yes i i agree i totally think that that's it which is that the worst option um (laughs) i don't know (laughs) of the ones given of the of the ones given to us is that 
is that the one to be most shameful of? I I don't think so. I like Credence a lot. <laughs> I think I, 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 I think the too. I think the misfits are, but <laughs> Well, and Amber says uh Madonna and, and Slayer. Or is it Slayer or Sabbath? Yeah, Slayer. Okay. Sabbath I think is the one that they they do say Sabbath when they are giving the interview and he asks oh, the Desert Island band because that's just a easy i think go to answer yeah the you know the kind of the one of the early big metal bands yeah that that makes sense but i think that there is there's something so measured about how this movie paces humor throughout that makes it a little easier to watch because i was not expecting it to go nearly as hard as it did and it's particularly gruesome especially the scenes where the dog is the the murderer because one of the things is they obviously have fighting dogs who are responsible for killing two of the four band members and they don't really pull punches on killing protagonists yeah i actually wanted to talk about the dogs i the dog stuff i found like hard to watch this time because that's i mean setting aside my own like kind of nervousness around around dogs sometimes this where they, they like shoot the dogs and they like hack at the dogs with the machetes like it's it's like pretty like violent animal stuff which is was for some reason way harder to watch for me this time but i i was thinking a lot about the the dog that kind of gets away and then at the end just kind of like snuggles up next to the dead um was it clark is his name the the nazi who's mm-hmm. the, the dog guy and i yeah. it was so so sad but also i think it's kind of a comment on like the dogs are obviously not treated particularly well because they're fighting dogs but he you know still goes back to the place that he finds comfort which is yeah. and i think that's that's sort of a comment on on what like extremist groups can be to people yeah and there's loyalty it's it's all about loyalty and that's one of the things that darcy mentions uh, throughout the course of the film is that he needs people to be loyal that's why emily is killed and that's why daniel is subsequently killed yeah as well because they were becoming disloyal by choosing to run away together yeah. Which then, I think that it's such a funny parallel to intercut the scenes of Gabe walking away from this doomed neo-Nazi group and the dog coming back. They're switching places. Oh yeah, that's a that's a great observation. I yeah, I thought that it was uh it was it was really interesting, but it's it's so gruesome to have to put together and to to watch all of the stuff that they go through. It really it pulls no punches at all. Uh and I think that that to its credit is accurately reflective of the the situation. Like that's just what it would be. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, the I think this movie is very matter of fact, I guess about both the violence. I mean, it's like, I don't know if the duct taping the arm thing would work or would be the right thing to do in that situation, but that shot sticks with me. (laughs) It's it's very upsetting. Yeah. Um, But I think it's also really matter of fact and like portrays really well the feeling of being in a band, if that makes sense. Like those opening scenes where they're like, they crash their van and they're pissed at each other, but they also are like, well, we got to figure this out because that's what we do. You know, we got to go siphon some gas and get back on the road and play a gig at a Mexican restaurant and also like they're so they're like you know halfway or all the way across the country and they are kind of sick of each other but they're also still playing pranks on each other and still kind of laughing and having a good time and i don't know i just think that mm-hmm. that it just nails the feeling of being in a band in a way that i have never seen another movie do yeah for sure they're realistic characters and i think that that is what makes it so successful and why we care so much about them because i was fully invested yeah when tiger died 
I was legitimately upset and I was legitimately shocked because I was not expecting them to do that. Yeah. The amount of character development that we get for these characters in the first you know, 30 to 40 minutes of the movie is a lot. And they have a lot of characters. Yeah, and it's they do a lot with a little, I guess, because it's not a long movie, but they, they give each character, like, just a little thing that that says a ton of a ton about them i know it's good writing yeah it's it's really really excellent writing i i think that it's interesting too to have this kind of conversation with you having a a more significant knowledge of of punk through actually being in it and part of the scene and i have um less of a knowledge of of punk in general but my knowledge of punk is like purely academic (laughs) yeah in that like i I, i've read literature about like punk and punk movements and specifically uh the the one that i kind of come up with is is dick hebdiga who wrote two books on punk and one of them is subcultures and talks about how these scenes interact with each other and how actually in in punk scenes in like the uk there was a lot of kinship between dub groups which was a predominantly black genre and then punk groups because of the the sort of pseudo anti-authoritative view uh on on police states and and rejection of police superiority especially there and so watching this movie now and seeing at the at the beginning uh the first song that they play is what nazi punks fuck off yeah the dead kennedy song yeah the dead kennedy song i was like wow bold choice but that's the spirit of punk. Yeah, I I, uh, I won't lie. That's the like that's like the fantasy of every everyone who's ever been in a punk band is to like play Nazi punks fuck off at a Nazi bar. <laughs> I will not to like play at a Nazi bar, but you know what I mean. Like to yeah. like scream that song in the face of the people that it's, that it's about. Um, and I, I yet another thing that I just love about the movie and the way that the audience reacts to that song and then are still like into the rest of their set is very funny and also very like I don't know that show felt like a real show. Yeah, they they fully are able to <laughs> to. Uh, to take themselves away from the the fantasy and just do the music and listen to the music and then be like, oh, okay, new song. Yeah. And, well, and then yeah. even even the worm is like, what was your last song? It was hard as fuck or whatever, which is in the, uh, that very upsetting moment when he is like, that's the song that I killed her to. But like, even he is like, yeah, the band's good or whatever. I don't know. It's it's like very dark humor there. Yeah, super super dark humor. And then it's juxtaposed immediately after the Dead Kennedy songs with this super light and really delicate classical score. Yeah, the so that's actually a one of the things that I really picked up on this time is that there's not a lot of punk music in this movie. Like there's a little bit here and no. there like record players and at the show, but like the score is is not that. All of the diegetic music right yeah they 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 separate the non-diegetic from the diegetic by having punk on one side and that's what we hear in universe and then everything else is distinctively not punk yeah and there there is something that i always i always find really funny about having scenes where they'll cut out all of the audio they'll have this picturesque music playing in the background over the top while it's high energy Right, and that's one of the things that happened in this movie. We're supposed to understand that they're playing a punk song, but we don't actually get to hear the punk music. We hear Nazi punks fuck off, and then we don't hear the punk music anymore. We watch them perform it, 
but overlaid with this classical score that has, for me, this this ephemeral quality to it. And it, it projects that ephemerality onto the band. Yeah, and it's over this, like, slow-motion mosh pit thing. Which, it goes along with the thing that they talked about at the beginning, which is... They were saying that people who had radio presence, internet presence, are selling out. And they weren't. So much so that, in fact, we, the audience, don't even get to hear much of their original material because it's getting blocked out. So it it really uh, lends not only the ephemerality of that kind of scene, but also says to the audience, even you do not get a full glimpse into the lives of this group past what we see publicly. Yeah, I really I really like that that point. I I I was I was so surprised at this movie and uh I really liked it. I thought it was so cool and really really well done. I like that it is it's set up as like a very realistic movie. If that makes sense, like it's very grounded in in reality. Although weirdly enough, apparently the original short that Jeremy Saulnier had worked on to, like had based this on when he initially wrote it was like a supernatural thing, which is kind of weird. Um but yeah. I this works Weird turn. Yeah, this works much better. Um but I like that it sort of follows the format of like some of the classic slashers or like Evil Dead where it's like bunch of kids out in the middle of nowhere get way in over their heads with something yeah which i think is yeah. is like it's just a great format for a horror movie yeah the bottle the, the bottle effect is in full force here and this is the this is the evil dead cabin right so they're they're trapped in the living room of the evil dead cabin because if they go into the other rooms they're liable to get attacked by spirits but also there's this whole secret world underground which, in my opinion, was underutilized. Yeah, I actually <laughs> felt like I'd remember that being a bigger part of the movie, but it's more just, well, they have a heroin operation to protect, and then they, you know, use the heroin to the, they give the cowcatcher the poisoned heroin. But it's, the heroin thing feels a little more incidental than I initially remembered. Um, because it's, I think it's really much more about the loyalty and the, and the sort of gang aspect of the, the Nazi group than it is like their, you know, their drug empire or whatever. Do they give the dog heroin? (laughs) I think that's what he was doing. I I couldn't, I couldn't tell, but I was watching it and I see him injecting the dog and he's just like, this will at least get him to the next fight. I was just like, is that? heroin or is it like adrenaline i guess it could be like a painkiller if it's you know heroin i I don't for fight dogs but i thought that that was like a surprise and also we we never see heroin except when Cowcatcher is dead. Yeah, you, you see like the bricks in the basement and then the actual use is only in that little sort of montage at the end, which also has that wonderful scene of Tadpole just like vacuuming his apartment. Yeah, yeah, for real. I thought that that was uh, an interesting kind of like juxtaposition of it and that it wasn't ever a point of fact in the movie that like they were like heroin. It's a heroin operation. They never really had to say that. Yeah. They didn't have to go down the the Breaking Bad crystal meth route. They were able to just be like, oh, and also this is why they're doing this. Like this is the severity of it. Yeah, like that's that's just one more reason for them to want to cover their own asses. Yeah, and I think that it's incredibly funny that really Darcy is a Walter White. He's the but he's also the Gus Ring. And I say that he's the Walter White because one of the things that Walter White does with Jesse in Breaking Bad is has like a, a fixation on doing things cleanly, precisely, and uh, kind of safely. 
Yeah, it doesn't... If you can say that about meth. But then he also is going back. He's leaving the green room and he kicks their stuff and says, this is a fire hazard. Get it? <laughs> like, in the moment, that's such a funny joke. But I think that it is also a testament to the measuredness of his character. Like... Yeah, well, he... I mean, he knows he... I mean, he knows that he can't have any trouble with the cops, basically. Because he's, a uh, Because, I mean you know for one the drug operation but two like he he knows what goes on at his at his bar um yeah and and so i think he's he does everything you know by the book to code exactly because that's how he protects his livelihood for sure he's protecting he's protecting his livelihood and he does it with such such specificity even even down to like where they put guns like he he's like no guns we don't use guns put them in this box put phones in this box like everything tells us oh shit they've done this before <laughs> yeah yeah it's not it's not new for them and the, i mean and it's the when he you know when he tells gabe to like get a crew together red laces only you get the sense that they've like you know yeah, yeah. this is this is well-trod territory for them they kind of know what to do yeah and it's it's what red laces only as in no like initiates or pre-initiates it's only the family it's very mafioso yeah that's another good comparison and i think that one of the things that uh kind of stuck with me as well in this movie is we are told that they are neo-nazis and skinheads obviously by their look and such but it only hits on the racial aspect of neo-nazism twice which is the joke at the end and then the the one time that darcy uses that racial slur yeah, so there, I mean, there's a couple other, I mean, the, for one, there's, like, white power stickers all over the green room. Right. And then there's that one, there's that other line that's, like, I mean, it's not, like, funny, but it's, uh, but when he's, like, clearing everyone out of the bar, he was, like, if you're coming back for the, whatever, race relations workshop or whatever, he makes it sound so, like, oh, this is a totally normal thing that's definitely, you know, definitely not, like, a, you know, racist uh, class right. or whatever. Um, yeah, it's, there's there's a couple there's a few other things like that I think that are that are kind of spread throughout the movie. And yeah, yeah, they're 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 peppered in, but they're never so explicit. That yeah. was I think the thing that that hit me is simultaneously the moment that he gives Gabe the red laces is the moment that you hear super explicit racism. Yeah, and like that I think is a a, a that's the light switch changing. As in, as in, like that's that's when he's like, at at this moment I can be just bear bear my soul or whatever, you know, be like truly honest about my feelings or whatever, because I'm like yeah, with family. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And we we all of a sudden see, and I think that it also says to Gabe, like that's that's the switch. We go. We have now gone from implied to explicit. Yeah, or or from the this is a family, it's about sticking together to this is actually about like you know white power. Because I think the idea of not even uh, I guess gangs, but like you know um, groups groups like this Nazi group or even groups like punk bands as like chosen family is like a thing that's woven throughout this movie, and and this idea that like that kind of thing can go bad. And and I think that's I mean, we haven't even talked about Amber as a character yet, but I don't like I don't see her as like a as like a true believer or a, you know, someone who's really into what's going on at the bar. She just kind of seems like she's hanging out and she knows everyone there and knows a lot about what's going on. But I don't see her as like someone who would want to like be involved in the movement. 
Um, unless yeah. I'm like misunderstanding her character, but I think she's, I think she is much more just kind of like around and takes, you know, obviously when they kill her friend, it, it, it she takes the opportunity and she fights back and is, she has many, many great moments in this movie. Um, yeah. And Daniel, Daniel and Emily were going to run away together. Right. Yes. And, and we, we get that. It's like Daniel is trying to escape this life. And his brother is a part of it, right? Like, I get the, you know, Daniel and Tadpole are cousins, and Daniel just got his red laces and is going to get out. And I think the implication is that he was go- he's going to, like, basically rat out the whole group, like, to the police. Because yeah, that's why he has the baseball, the baseball bat, bat. Which was his, I assume he, like, you know, beat someone up with it in his initiation ceremony, I think is the implication. Yeah. I, I think that that's what it implies, too. And it's it's one of those things where if you are... In that scenario, survival means joining the stronger gang. Yeah. Right? They have the they have the same problem with significant gang presences in California, in Chicago, in New York. Sometimes if that's where you live, it's either join gang or be killed by said gang. Yeah. And so Daniel, I think... Daniel, because Daniel turns right away. Like, it is instantaneous. Well, because he... The second that he realizes. Cause, well, because he sees Emily's body, and then he... But he, at the time, had been told that, like, someone in, in the Eight Rights had killed her. Yeah. And then and then when he finds out that Worm did it, he, like, yeah, that's the switch flips for him, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on the other side now. And there's no hesitancy to believe them. I think that that's an important distinction as well, because he's not like, you're lying to me. He's like know that tracks I was going to leave and they didn't want me to. Yeah. Well, and then, and then there's that moment where I don't remember if, if it's, if it's Amber who says it or it's him or the other guy who, who like I said, might be his brother or just another skinhead is like, well, if they didn't, if they didn't know already, they know now. Yeah. I thought that that was like a, a, a really pertinent moment too, because a lot of this is about the camaraderie uh, of the whole scenario, even down to when the band is, with Amber and it's the first time that they're gonna like try and fight back and get out somebody makes the the should we split up quip yeah and the three people that split up because they have like the residual strength to die yeah <laughs> just immediately so uh it's only in in the camaraderie of Pat and Amber at the end that they are able to escape because they work as a team yeah, well, and she, I mean, even to the very end, she's like, you know, he's like, I fi- figured out my band, and she's like, tell someone who gives a shit. Like, she, I don't know that, yeah. she, it's not like there's a happy ending, it's not like they're, you know, no, they're gonna no, be no, friends no, no, or no. anything, but they're, they are bonded through circumstance, and they, you know, and, and yeah. it, it, it's kind of a similar thing to, like, you, you stick with the people that you're in the, that you're in a situation with. Yeah, you don't have to like them, but if they're your path to survival... Yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. I am really glad that I watched it, and I can definitely see this being one that I watch again. Yeah, this was, I think, third or fourth viewing for me. I don't know. I could go back to this one once a year. And, like, I was <laughs> I was joking that it was, like, a, like, I needed a comfort movie, but it's, it's like, the least comfortable comfort movie ever. For sure, yeah. It's, it is, it is right on that... <laughs> <laughs> right on that line of like, oh yeah, this is a watchable horror movie. Yep. <laughs> uh, Troy, do you have anything that you would like to plug? My band's new album will be out. 
Um, we are called Jeff Schaller and the Long Way Home. We sound nothing like the Ain't Rights, <laughs> um, but uh, I think we're okay. Um, our new album will be out on February 17th. Um, it is called For Keeps and a Single Day. Um, I am very proud of it. I spent like three years making it. Yeah, so that's that's the big thing to plug right now. Yeah, great. Go check out Troy's Troy's upcoming album and also the backlog, which I'm sure is is full of interesting stuff. And you'll be hearing from him again on another episode of Watch No Evil soon. So thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Troy. And remember, you're on in 10. Thank <laughs> you.